0: Hello. Let's pray. Lord we need your wisdom to understand and apply your word. We need your grace to treat people kindly and with honour. We need your strength to walk the path you lay out for us. Please help us as we gather around your word today. We want to worship you and give the glory to you in this. Amen. Our passage today, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, it goes like this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The way Paul starts this section, we can tell he's intended to establish an important and central principle. He opens with this comment in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. We've seen him use this phrase before in 1 Timothy 1.15, like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We only see him use this expression in the pastoral epistles, the letters he wrote to church pastors, and he's saying, here's something we all know, and we all know it to be true. It's important, and we live by this. So what is it that's true, important, and central? It's that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, If anyone's passionate about becoming a church overseer and elder, he needs to take note that he set his heart on a noble task. This isn't a trivial matter. Paul has a high view of church leadership, by which I mean he takes this very, very seriously. Noble. The Greek word here, kalos, means beautiful, pleasing, valuable, ethically good, sound. Distinguished, honourable, honest, worthy, virtuous, admirable. Eldership is all these things. I don't get the sense that Paul is saying here, if you set your heart on eldership, you are noble. Now, I think his purpose is to emphasise the awesome responsibility, the weighty matter of overseeing a church. To borrow a phrase from the traditional marriage service, eldership is not to be entered into lightly. You want to be an elder? Brace yourself. So the word translated noble is quite significant. The other significant word in this first verse is the one translated overseer or elder, episcope in the Greek. I've mentioned two Greek words now, so just to reassure you, that's my quota for the sermon. I don't read or speak New Testament Greek, and I wouldn't normally look so closely at the original words in a sermon, but here it's important. Paul's laying out a serious doctrine, a fundamental Christian truth, and it deserves particular care. So we've seen kalos, noble, honourable, And now we're looking, briefly, at episcopate. The word was traditionally translated bishop, and when people write about the early church and the church fathers, they often refer to them as bishops, and that's the word you'd see in the KJV. More commonly in our sector of the church, we tend to use the word elder. But there are slight problems with that English word elder. Firstly, It tends to imply chronological maturity. Someone who's older. Well, the Greek word here doesn't have anything to say about age. And I think this is probably why the ESV translators went for the other option. Overseer. Paul's talking about the people who oversee a church. The overseer, the elder... Is responsible for the care of the congregation. Sooner or later, he'll have to make judgment calls about church matters. And in saying all this about elders, we have to fight against our cultural influences. Out there in the world, when people use the word leader, they're thinking about someone who's responsible over others, a boss. A manager. Someone who's thought of as successful. Someone who, whether we admit it or not, is considered more valuable because of this leadership status. We have such a performance mentality in the West. You know, this idea that a person's value comes from what they achieve. Like in 1999, I became a solicitor and people treated me differently. Differently because of this perception of status, of achievement. And yet, the person I was on the 31st of March 1999 was no different to the person I was on the 1st of April 1999. Yes, I qualified on April Fool's Day. I thought that was appropriate. Keep me humble. I am not what I do. You are not what you do. When Paul talks about eldership, he's not emphasising some lofty position, some kind of title that means you've made it. Quite the contrary. In fact, as we look at the rest of this passage, we'll see that Paul gets pretty close to saying to elders, boy, now you're in trouble. The elder, the overseer, is first and foremost a servant. A servant who's held to high standards, by his master. You want to be an elder? Careful, that's noble. Verse 2 starts with the word therefore and then begins a list of attributes that an elder should have. Because this is a noble task, because this is so serious, an elder has to be like this. Paul then says what an elder should be like. He gives Fourteen characteristics, those that we saw when we read today's passage, this is what an elder should be like. But when reading this passage, it's very helpful to keep in our minds who an elder should be like. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There he's speaking to an entire church inviting them to emulate him because ultimately he's imitating Jesus. They can visibly see in him desirable Christ-like characteristics, so the members of that congregation could aspire to be like Paul. Why? Because Paul was something special? No, simply because in aspiring to be like Paul, who they could see, they were by definition aspiring to be like Christ, who they could not see. Paul was an apostle to many churches, and he strove to be like Jesus. How else could he be an example to the churches? It was his duty. This is a crucial point, the crucial point. A church elder has to model himself on Jesus. And by model himself, I mean allow the Holy Spirit to work on him to make him more like Jesus. If he doesn't, he won't be leading a church he'll be leading a cult. Let me repeat that. A church elder has to model himself on Jesus. If he doesn't, he won't be leading a church. He'll be leading a cult. Elders must lay down their own lives, their dreams, their ambitions, their personal goals in order to become more like Christ. Another apostle, Peter, agrees completely with Paul on this. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter uses the metaphor of shepherding, and see how he does it. The church, the congregation, is the flock. The elders are the shepherds. And Jesus is the chief shepherd shepherd. The elders, the under-shepherds, follow the example of the chief shepherd. He's the best shepherd. He is the elder's teacher, their master. There is no better shepherd. To be a good shepherd, you follow the example of the chief shepherd. You learn his ways. Your goal is to be like him. And since all this is true, it follows that this list of 14 characteristics that we see in 1 Timothy 3 is not a checklist. If we're establishing or recognising an elder, we can't just look down this list and go, one wife, tick, gentle, tick, respectable, tick, tick, tick. The elder doesn't have to be like this list. He has to be like Christ. These criteria, this list, is a description of Jesus. And that fact will really help us to understand this passage. You know, we're going to get to the bit that says a husband of one wife, and you understandably might say, but Jesus never married. How can this list describe him? That's right. And knowing that Jesus never married helps us to interpret that phrase rightly. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Elders are to be like Jesus. How can they be like Jesus? This is a high bar Paul's setting, right? To steal one of his phrases from 2 Corinthians 2, 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who indeed? This can't be done in human strength. Elders, perhaps more than anyone, need the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This should also make elders amongst the most humble and lowest of people. I mean that. Eldership is a high calling, but an elder is in a low position, because no human being can meet this standard. They need God's power at work in them. They need all their human so-called strengths, stripped away, redeemed, replaced with his gifts and God's agenda. And with that empowerment, with that essential dependence on Christ, here in this passage are 14 ways that are amongst many ways in which elders can be like Jesus. And if a person doesn't match up to these fourteen characteristics, that's a good way of testing whether or not he's becoming like Jesus. If he's not, he probably shouldn't be an elder. Does that make sense? First characteristic. An overseer must be above reproach. This is where it all starts, isn't it? Jesus was completely beyond reproach. He was without sin. The charges against him at his trial, they were completely trumped up, all lies. 1 Peter two twenty two reads, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But how can an elder live up to that? Like I said, it's a high bar. But all things are possible through Christ, who strengthens us. Fortunately, Paul isn't saying here that a church leader should have no sin, because then we'd have no church leaders. He is saying that an elder should be blameless. There shouldn't be any charge that could stick. So he can't commit fraud, he can't have an affair, he can't lie, he'd better watch out for pride, and he shouldn't steal even a pencil, above reproach. And why is this? Two big reasons. Firstly, an elder is an example to his congregation. We all know that elders are human and fallible, but still, an elder caught in a sin, what are the implications for the congregation? I mean, if he can't resist, what chance do I have? Or, If it's okay for him, it must be okay for me. Elders are role models. They should be role models. That's why Paul said, imitate me. There's a duty to the congregation not to set an example that leads them directly into error and sin. And the second big reason, an elder shouldn't give Jesus or the gospel a bad name. If I say, televangelist, what sort of image does that conjure up for you? Possibly a very wealthy, white, tanned TV personality with lots of jewellery who preaches about how God wants you to be rich. It's a stereotype, yes, but you see where it comes from. A greedy, materialistic elder is not presenting Jesus as we know him. The Jesus who said things like, give up all you have and follow me. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Jesus didn't own a house, a car, and he certainly didn't have a fleet of private jets or camels. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, strongly emphasises protecting the poor, the defenceless, the socially low, not accumulating possessions for yourself. How an elder lives his life and presents himself matters. I'm picking on one example only. The principle here is that an elder absolutely mustn't tarnish the witness of the gospel in any way. It's a high standard. I don't recommend anyone set their sights on becoming an elder. How can they be above reproach? What examples can we give? Well, on to the next point. The second characteristic we see in verse 2. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, you remember I said earlier that Jesus never married while he was on earth. He is described metaphorically as a bridegroom, and the church is his bride. But I don't want to strain that metaphor here. We just need to tease out what is it that this characteristic says about elders that would also be true of Christ. It's not that an elder has to be married. And it's not, I don't think, that an elder has to have had only one wife in his lifetime. He could be widowed or I think even divorced under the few cases permitted by scripture, though treat that divorce point with caution, it's a complicated one. The best way I can put it is a phrase I've seen in a few different commentaries on this verse. I'm not sure really how else to say it. It's that he's a one woman man, a one lady only kind of guy. He'd never have two wives. He wouldn't marry a man, and he certainly wouldn't have a wife and a a mistress. He's committed to heterosexual monogamy. Whether he's married or not, whether or not he ever marries, his position is that he would only ever be married to one woman at a time, and he wouldn't divorce that woman, except as permitted by scripture. In relation to marriage and sexuality, he's pure. And it's very safe to say that that is true of Jesus. He is utterly faithful. Back to the metaphor, his one and only bride is his church. So Jesus is an example to elders of this personal attribute. It's about faithfulness and sexual morality. Let's look at the third and fourth characteristics together. Sober-minded, self-controlled. It is possible that Paul here is thinking literally of being sober, not getting drunk or high. But when we take these characteristics together, it's more that Paul's talking of being watchful, alert, clear-headed. Can you think of a more clear-headed person than our saviour? Jesus knew his mission and he knew his destiny and he wouldn't deviate to the right or the left on his journey to the cross. In a similar way, the men who oversee our churches must stay focused. They can't afford to be distracted by sin, by temptation, not even by things that look like worthy causes. If they would keep them from the care of their congregations and their prior commitments. We humans have limited amounts of time and energy, limited resources. God, in his wisdom, chose to make us finite. An elder has to choose wisely how he spends his time and money. And that's not to say that looking after the church is the only or even primary thing an elder does, by the way. No, the primary thing that any elder must do is see to his relationship with God. And we see a fantastic example of what that looked like in Jesus. Mark 1, 35, for instance. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. This is what he did. It drove the disciples spare sometimes. Everyone's looking for you, they'd say. Jesus knew the vital importance of spending time with his father. That came first. And so it must be with elders. It's a lot of work, isn't it? This eldership business. The fifth characteristic, respectable. Now, don't be misled here by cultural bias, or a middle class, or any other class perspective. This is not, oh, he's a very nice man, very respectable, got a good job, a nice house, proper wife. It's not that. An elder is respectable because he behaves well. He's modest. He's not a poser. He's not flashy. If you don't think that a former drug addict, or ex-prostitute can be respectable, then you need to redefine that word in your head. This respectability is someone living an orderly, godly life, and any sinner who's been redeemed can do that. Of course, looking at Jesus, some of his contemporaries didn't think he was respectable at all. The Pharisees said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew 9, 11. They didn't think he was respectable. They were wrong. No one lived a better life. He is the very standard of respectability. And that's the standard an elder has to hold to. Sixth characteristic. Hospitable. This is an interesting one. This principle of hospitality is right back in the earliest parts of the Old Testament. And then it carries on throughout the Bible. God talks to the Israelites about how they should treat the people, the foreigners, who pass through their lands with kindness. In fact, with love. Deuteronomy 10, 18-19. He, God, Executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, the traveller, the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Exercise hospitality even to people who are not like you. Hospitality is seen in people who don't want to keep everything to themselves. They're generous. They share. They share their resources and their lives. How was Jesus hospitable then? He didn't have a home, so he couldn't readily invite people back for lunch after church. But remember, he did feed people. 5,000 at once on one occasion, as I recall. He fed people physically and spiritually. And when people brought their children to Jesus and the disciples were saying, now don't bother Jesus, he's very busy and important. Jesus said, hang on a moment, let the children come to me. Matthew 19, verse 14. With Jesus, all were welcome, all, though you could possibly expect a hard time from him if you were a hypocrite. The children were welcome. The tax collectors and sinners were welcome. The lepers were welcome. And what hospitality did he show them? He gave them his time. He gave them his wisdom. He healed them. He forgave them. That last one isn't really the job of an elder. That's a Jesus-only thing, this forgiveness for sins. But you, you get my point. He gave them his presence, his blessed holy presence. He gave himself. An elder loves people and shows hospitality. And that might look different from one elder to the next. But the principle here is that an elder gives of himself to others. The seventh characteristic, able to teach. Now this is a big one. We can tell it's important because it's the characteristic that's conspicuously Missing when Paul talks about deacons in the church. Deacons are generally people with some kind of leadership role, but who aren't responsible for the congregation's spiritual health, like elders are. In the criteria for deacons, Paul says nothing about teaching, so this aspect is a particular requirement for overseers, for pastors. And if you think about it, that makes complete sense. How can an elder guide his congregation if he can't help them to understand the Bible or the ways of the Holy Spirit? Did Jesus teach? Well, I could start talking now about all the ways Jesus taught, and I'd still be going this time next Christmas. Jesus taught in the synagogue. There's a Sermon on the Mount There are the private interactions with his disciples when he corrects and guides them. He was constantly teaching, so much so that people called him rabbi or good teacher. There are many ways to teach, and in this passage, Paul doesn't prescribe how the elder must teach. He also doesn't say that any one elder has to teach all the time, every Sunday. Later in this book, in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. So there may be some elders whose particular duty or skill is preaching and teaching. But all elders, whether they're preaching every week or not, must be able to teach and must follow the example of Jesus in this, carefully guiding their congregation in life and in doctrine. There's a severe responsibility here because an elder who's teaching, if he's not careful and submitted fully to God, can teach error. He can lead people into heresy. And then he's doubly responsible, once for his own error and again for the errors of his congregation. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13 verse 17a, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Elders will have to give an account to God of what they've done and how they've served him. One more thing to say about teaching it's a common rule of thumb, that if you want to teach something well, you need to understand it to a greater level than you teach. If I want to teach someone to play the drums, I need to be a reasonably good drummer. If I want to teach maths at GCSE level, I probably need to understand it to A level or above if I want to teach someone to play squash, I need to have a good grasp of the game, otherwise my students will pick up all my bad techniques. So there's no escaping this. If an elder is to teach, teach doctrine, teach the Bible, teach the ways of God, he has to be well acquainted with those ways himself. Immersed in the Bible, applying it to his own life, feeling the pain of God's discipline personally before he presumes to help anyone else through the same. He can't be an unmarried marriage guidance counsellor. He can't be a theoretical football coach who's never kicked a ball in his life. He needs to have lived, to have learnt, to have applied and to be able to internalise all those lessons and convey them as guidance and wisdom for his congregation. Being an elder is a noble duty. What else? Characteristics eight to 14. Eight, not a drunkard. Nine, not violent, but gentle. 10, not quarrelsome. 11, not a lover of money. 12. Able to manage his own household well. 13. Not a recent convert. 14. Well thought of by outsiders. Can you see how all these fit together to describe perfectly our Lord Jesus and also to stand as a template, a model for our elders? Someone who's just become a Christian, if you make him an elder before he's learnt much, it's going to go to his head or he'll teach people badly from his own lack of knowledge and experience. If he's a lover of money, that will show. In fact, any idolatry can have no place in the heart of an elder. His first love must be God. After that, his family and his church Most churches have a rigorous process people have to go through before they become an elder. And you can understand that. It's an awesome responsibility and the Bible sets very high standards for elders. And because of all this, we who are not called elders, we should pray for them. Pray for their protection, their guidance, their spiritual health their enjoyment of life, because running a church can be a burden if you didn't know. Pray for our elders. If you're not sure what to pray, go back a chapter to 1 Timothy 2. There are some good ideas there. Pray. You may have noticed while I've been preaching today that in talking about elders, I've exclusively used male pronouns. He, him, his. There's strong support in the Bible for this view of male-only eldership. There's also strong support in the Bible for female leaders. Not elders, but leaders. And that's the position I hold, I believe in, and it's the position of our congregation, Freedom Church, our leadership, and the group of churches to which we belong. Not every church, not every person agrees with this interpretation. You might not agree. There's a spectrum of views. On the one hand, there are those who believe that it's equally open for women to be in eldership. On the other hand, there are those who believe that no woman should ever hold a position of church leadership. At Freedom Church, our understanding sits between those two extremes. So if you share this understanding, what, you might think, should you do about any women you happen to come across who have been appointed as elders? Do, I say. Why do we have to do anything except pray? A woman who's been placed in a position of eldership has an extra burden there. Not only does she have to live up to all the responsibilities of eldership, she also has to contend with a significant chunk of the church that will vigorously oppose her. That's not an enviable position. Pray for all elders, whether you personally think they should be an elder or not. We don't have to fix anything. We pray and leave all matters in the hands of God. Ultimately, we want to see God's purposes fulfilled and his kingdom advanced. And those purposes aren't helped by infighting and name-calling within the church. Brothers and sisters, Let's centre ourselves around the person and character of Jesus Christ. Let's treat one another with love and compassion that transcends our differences. We hold to the teaching of scripture as we understand it, but we do so humbly. And we pray for our elders. It's a noble calling. Let's do that now. Lord God, we thank you that you have considered it right and proper to give elders to the church, to your church, to minister to the church, to serve the church. Lord, we ask that you protect and guide them, especially the elders in our own church. We pray for those people that we know who are caring for us. But worldwide too, Lord, in your global church, will you please strengthen all elders everywhere. Teach them your word. teach them your ways, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Because we know that this is a difficult job that you have called these people to. And we ask for your blessing on them, for your glory, for the sake of your church and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If anything that I have talked about today has challenged you in any way and you're not sure about it, then feel free to talk to me about it or indeed to your house group leaders or church leaders and we'd be happy to dialogue these things with you. May God bless you. Goodbye.